Our text today in the book of Genesis tells one of the greatest rags to riches stories in all of world history. How a slave turned prisoner became the prime minister of the greatest world power of his day. We love a good rags to riches story, don't we? Especially when it happens in real life. You know, it might be fun if we had time to go around the room and maybe name our, the list our favorite rags to riches movie and why it's clearly Rocky. Like any other, any other choice you would make other than Rocky is not the correct one. Now, these type of stories often have a fairy tale feel to them, don't they? Whether it's Cinderella or Aladdin or Slumdog Millionaire, whatever it is, these stories seem almost too good to be true. And that's kind of how it is with the Joseph story today. His was a meteoric rise from a pit to the palace. And it didn't happen, friends, because Joseph hit life's jackpot by luck, but because God was moving behind the scenes with meticulous providence governing everything that took place. Remember that Joseph in chapter 50, as we saw a couple weeks ago, gives us the interpretive grid for the entire story. In Genesis 37 to 50, he told his brothers what? You meant evil against me, but God, what? It meant it for good to keep many people alive. In other words, the sovereign Lord reigns. He works out his purposes, even through the wickedness of Joseph's brothers. And as we'll see today, the wickedness of Potiphar's wife, the forgetfulness of Joseph's cellmate in prison. But in the end, we'll see that it was the Lord. It was the Lord who lifted Joseph to the highest place even if, as it was the Lord who led him through the lowest place. Friends, this text of Scripture is meant to encourage us this morning. We live in a world, don't we, full of suffering and injustice and confusion and brokenness. And maybe you're here this morning and you are weighed down by these very things in your life. And guess what? If you're not now, you have been sometime in the past and you will be sometime in the future. But what we're going to see happen in Joseph's life and is in many ways a divine blueprint for the architecture of our Christian life. Oh no, we may not be promoted to power. Our life may not ever feel like a fairy tale, but what we can bank on is that in God's gracious providence, the road of affliction for his people always leads to glory. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. It's on page 33 of the Bible underneath your pew. I always say that. My former church had pews underneath your chair. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you to be your own Bible. We are covering these last four Sundays in Genesis at a rapid pace with several chapters at a time. And so buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Genesis 39 to 41 this morning. Our narrator, Moses, left us with a bit of a cliffhanger ending, didn't he, at the end of chapter 37? The sons of Jacob despised their 17-year-old brother so much and the dreams that he told them that they sold him to a caravan that just happened, right? Just, just happened to be passing through on the way to Egypt. And then they duped their father Jacob into thinking that Joseph had been mauled to death by an animal. Chapter 37 ended with, with Joseph being sold into slavery again this time in Egypt, to Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh himself. 
Then, then last week, we looked at this, this interlude of the story in chapter 38 about Judah. And we learned through the, his sordid story that Judah came to have a son named Perez, who we know would be part of Israel's kingly line, the ancestor of both King David and King Jesus, our Messiah and our Lord. Well, the curtain closed on the scene in Canaan in chapter 38, and when it opens again in chapter 39, we're back in Egypt. And this Joseph story continues. So let's read the entire chapter of Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him down from the Ishmaelites, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his, his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at, came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison and the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Now, friends, we'll continue later reading the text in chapters 40 to 41. And, and really, each of these chapters is, is a different scene in the story. Of course, chapter 39, what we just read is, is the account of Joseph's surprising rise to stature as a slave in Potiphar's house, and then his fall from stature after Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of trying to violate her. 
And then chapter 40 records events while Joseph was in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And then chapter 41 details Joseph's shocking ascent to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, taking a backseat only to Pharaoh himself. Well, every week I give you a main idea of the, of the sermon. Here it is for chapters 39 to 41. We hope this is the main agenda setter for the sermon. I forgot to get it to our people in the back. My apologies. It's short this week. In God's gracious providence, the road of suffering leads to glory for his people. In God's gracious providence, the road of suffering leads to glory for his people. Three points this morning describing these different scenes. Number one, the test. Number two, the pit. And number three, the palace. The test, the pit, and the palace. And you may ask, well, did you go to thesaurus.com and look for another P word that gives the idea of test. Yes, I did, and I could not find one. So no alliteration completely. The test, the pit, and the palace. Let's look at the test in chapter 39. Friends, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, this story is probably familiar to you. Let's not forget, though, given the familiarity of the story, how much Joseph's life had changed. He went from the favorite son of his father to a common slave. He had left the rural pastures of Canaan for the urban center of the world's superpower of the day. As Joseph was led by caravan through the Nile Valley, he would have likely seen the pyramids in their prime, newly built around that period. And he was just immediately immersed in this pluralistic society. He would have heard of the, the cosmic gods of Egypt, like, like Ra, the sun god, and the cult of Osiris, and Pharaoh himself worshipped as divine by the Egyptian people. Even the name of Joseph's master Potiphar meant he whom Ra has given. So Joseph has come to a land dominated by the worship of false gods with no knowledge of Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet look, look at the first words of verse two. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph had been ripped away from the promised land, but he had not been ripped away from the Lord of the promise. Here, Joseph was vulnerable. He's separated from everything he had ever known, and he's alone. And yet in the very moment, his life hung in the balance. The scripture reiterate, reiterates over and over again that Joseph really wasn't alone. The Lord's presence was with him. Just like the Lord promised to Joseph's father, Jacob, at Bethel, so we see described here for Jacob's son. The Lord was with him. Friends, remember in chapter 37, we talked about a lot, the hidden providence of God, that all throughout the chapter, there's no explicit mention of the Lord, but we see his hidden hand at work. And then in chapter 38, God is mentioned, but in relation to judgment of Judah's sons, but now it's as if Moses is writing in bold ink and then highlighting it and then underlining it for us. Don't miss this. Five times in chapter 39, we're told what? The Lord was with Joseph. In fact, God's presence bookends the chapter, doesn't it? We're told that the Lord was with Joseph at the beginning and even after Joseph was falsely accused and then thrown into prison, we're once again told the Lord is with him. 
Clearly, Moses, our narrator at this point, doesn't mean for us to trace the hidden providence of the Lord so much as the obvious presence of the Lord with Joseph. Friends, Joseph did not prosper in Potiphar's house because of his intellect or his superior administrative gifts, but because of God's presence with him. You can see it right in verse two. He became a successful man. Why? Because God was with him. So evident was God's favor and presence in Joseph's life that pagan Potiphar picked up on the fact that the Lord was with him, according to verse three. Everything that Joseph touched turned to gold. And I I think given Potiphar's confession about Joseph, Joseph's faith in Yahweh was not merely a private matter because Potiphar attributed Joseph's success to Joseph's God. So successful was Joseph's work that Potiphar made him his personal assistant and then promoted him to his chief of staff, really, overseer of his entire house. And according to verse five, look, it's not just that the Lord blessed Joseph, but through Joseph, the Lord blessed the house of Potiphar for Joseph's sake. So what we're seeing here is like a really like a sneak preview of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Joseph, the offspring of Abraham, is blessing the nations through the Lord's covenant presence with him, just like Abraham's greatest son, the Lord Jesus, would do exponentially one day. Friends, what a reminder this is to us. Here Joseph was abandoned by his family, but held fast by his God. All around, he would have seen temples and shrines and jewelry and murals of Egypt's gods. Yet the one true and living God was with him. The Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not pictured here as the Lord of the Hebrews only, but is reigning even in the land of Egypt's gods. Let this encourage your heart this morning, friends. Because we, as Christians here on this side of the cross, are not merely promised the presence of God with us, but in us through His Spirit. In life's trials, the, the Spirit Himself not only strengthens us, but prays for us when we don't know how to pray. The Lord, our God, is with us. As a result of the Lord's blessing, Potiphar trusted Joseph implicitly. The Bible says he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And that note for us in verse six really helps to set up this test of Joseph's character in the following verses. Verse seven says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, his build and his looks. And apparently it ran in the genes because this very phrase was said of Joseph's mother, Rachel, back in Chapter 29, verse 17. It's the only time in the entire Bible that a man is described in this way. So apparently Joseph was a specimen. He must have been. And apparently his looks were both a blessing and a burden. Because according to verse 7, Potiphar's wife did what? Cast her eyes upon Joseph. This woman is filled with lust for him and her overtures toward him are just brazen. Lie with me, she says. It seems like she's using her status as the master's wife as a power dynamic here, doesn't it? She's not going to take no for an answer. And according to verse 10, day after day after day, she enticed him. Friends, I think think Joseph's refusal to sleep with her is remarkable enough given her repeated attempts. But, you know, he was single, right? 
No one would know. She was probably quite beautiful. But his, his refusal isn't just remarkable because it would have been difficult, but because it would have not been safe for him to say no. He was her slave. He could have, he could have reasoned, well, yeah, this is just one of those lamentable hazards of being a slave in Egypt. I got to do it. Sleeping with her might advance my vocation as the, the chief of staff of, of Potiphar. But no, Joseph kept his integrity. And notice his reasoning why he refused to give in to her seduction. First, he says, my master trusts me, essentially. Verse 8, but he refused and he said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He's put everything under my charge. Joseph remarkably demonstrated loyalty to Potiphar. The sleep with his wife would have betrayed the trust he put in him. The second reason Joseph gives, he understands that to obey Potiphar's wife would be to disobey Potiphar, since according to verse 9, Potiphar had not kept back anything from Joseph except his wife. Friends, think about this with me for a second. Lesser men would have used those very reasons in order to commit the sin, not to say no. Unilateral power, high position, the implicit trust of the husband. Joseph could have leveraged all those things toward adultery, but instead those were two of the reasons that grounded his integrity. But then notice the ultimate reason in verse 9. In light of all that, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? At the end of the day, giving in to this woman's seduction would not just have been an offense against Potiphar. It would have been an offense, a grievous sin against the Lord, the one whose presence had blessed and sustained Joseph through all that he had been through. Friends, do you notice this? Joseph's resistance is radically God-centered. His theology formed his ethics. His ethics did not dictate his theology. You see that? His view of God grounded his pursuit of holiness. You know, brothers and sisters, if we're going to resist sin in our life, it is not going to be by the strength of our will, is it? Or the force of our resolve, but by the knowledge of God that shapes our desires to honor him, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Well, verses 11 to 18 record this infamous incident in which Potiphar's wife's lust turned physical. She waited until a moment in which there was total privacy and she grabbed Joseph's garment and propositioned him once again. Verse 12 shows an equal, equally forceful response from Joseph. He, he left the garment in her hand and he fled and he got out of the house. Brothers especially, and sisters. Notice what Joseph didn't do. He didn't reason with her. He didn't linger. He ran. He didn't trust himself long enough to stay around. He got out of there. Friends, we can't always remove ourselves from temptation, but when we can, do it. Do it. Don't provide opportunity for your flesh. If you linger by the fire, chances are what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. It's not legalistic, guys. 
especially. It's not legalistic to remove apps from your phone that tempt you or install accountability software on your laptop. It's not. It's not cowardly when you're tempted to sin, to take a walk, to mitigate your lust. It's not old-fashioned to have firm rules in place about when and where you're with members of the opposite sex. And even if it is old-fashioned, who cares? Who cares if it means keeping your integrity? I, I read commentators this week that in an effort to make God the hero of the story, and rightly so, right, claim that Joseph isn't meant to be a model for us of resisting temptation. And, you know, while I agree that a simple be like Joseph moralistic approach isn't the most helpful, I, I, I understand that, right? Ultimately, the power to resist temptation isn't by modeling Joseph, but through the strength of the one who resist, resisted Satan himself in our place, right? And then died for us to cancel sin's penalty and its power in our lives. We pursue righteousness as Christians with transformed hearts and desires, right? That are being renewed by the spirit of God day by day as we see Christ in the scripture. But friends, clearly Moses wants us to see here in Joseph a great contrast from his promiscuous brother of the previous chapter, right? He holds Joseph up as an example of righteousness. Could it be that the apostle Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, flee youthful lusts, may have had Joseph in mind when he wrote that? Don't hang around. Don't roll the dice. Don't cozy up to sin. Run. Run like Joseph with the wind of the gospel at your back and the glory of God at your front. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The one who loves me, the one who rescued me from sin and death. Listen to what Spurgeon said on this. I love this. While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I had ever kicked against him. When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against the one who loved me and sought my good. Amen. I think it's ironic, isn't it? For the, for the second time, Joseph's garment plays a pivotal part in the story. Earlier, his blood-soaked robe served as evidence for his so-called death. And here, his garment serves as evidence of his so-called crime. Evidently enraged and humiliated by Joseph's rebuffing of her, what does Potiphar's wife do? She frames Joseph as having been the aggressor. It's the exact opposite. It's wickedness. It's a wicked lie. She indicted Joseph to the other servants in the house, and then she told her husband the same story when he returned home. Verse 19 says that Potiphar's anger was kindled. In verse 20, he took him, he took Joseph and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Let's move to our second point. You see the, the test that Joseph endured righteously, but now we see the pit. And I'm using the term pit here because it's actually the word, if you notice over in chapter 41, verse 14, Moses uses the word pit to describe the prison. He calls it the pit. It's the same word for the pit 
that Joseph's brothers threw him into in the desert. Joseph here, we see, continues to descend the social strata in the story. Think about it. At first, what do his brothers do? Throw him into the pit, right? Left him there to die at first, then got him out to sell him into slavery. Then chapter 39, verse 1, said he, he was brought down to Egypt. So we're sinking lower, and now he's a slave. And now he's unrighteously accused, and now we see him sinking even farther down into the pit of prison. He's no longer a slave. He's a prisoner. And yet notice where verse 20 says this particular prison is. It's the place where the king's prisoners were confined. This was Pharaoh's dungeon. So friends, do you see this beautiful irony? The further that Joseph descends down the social ladder, the closer to the palace he is. It's beautiful. He is suffering and humiliation, but Moses even now wants us to see vindication and exaltation await. You may be thinking, okay, wait a second. Wait a second. This is not how this is supposed to go down, right? Joseph had integrity. He honored the Lord. And this is what he gets. This is his reward and all expense paid trip to Pharaoh's dungeon. This is unfair, indeed. But what happens to Joseph here, friends, is a reminder that just because we do the right thing doesn't mean that we'll avoid difficulty and suffering. Worshiping God isn't a golden ticket to a suffering-free life. God's providence doesn't work like a, a cosmic vending machine. We insert the coin of righteousness and, and boom, out pops exactly what we want, the life we've always dreamed of. Christianity doesn't promise us health, wealth, and happiness. Friends, if we preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and we live by the ethics of the kingdom of God, you can guarantee that those, that message and those ethics are going to clash with the ethics and the message of the kingdom of man. You can expect this very type of mistreatment that Joseph experienced. We know this because Jesus told us, a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Remember, we talked about this in the Beatitudes back in the fall. The reason we as Christians rejoice in our sufferings and count ourselves blessed to endure mistreatment for the sake of Christ is we know the reward that awaits us. We're willing to sacrifice earthly pleasure for eternal joy. Well, notice how the chapter ends. Chapter 39, that is. The Lord had been with Joseph during prosperity, and now he's with him in adversity. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast love. Oh, friends, that's, that's that Hebrew word hesed, the covenant love of the Lord. The Lord gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And just like Potiphar, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's hand or in his charge because the Lord was with him. And once again, whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Oh, the, we've heard this song before. This is the chorus of Joseph's life. The Lord was with him. Now, in case you haven't noticed, this is not normal. <laughs> prison wardens don't normally give the entire prison 
to an inmate, right? They don't normally function prisoners as stewards of their fellow prisoners at the facility at which they're incarcerated. But so obvious, so obvious was the Lord's favor on Joseph that once again, he rose to responsibility and stature in the prison. This is incredible. The lowest two points in Joseph's life are marked by the presence of God. It's a reminder to us, beloved, never evaluate God's love and God's presence by your circumstances. Rather, evaluate your circumstances by God's love and by his presence. Let's start reading again to pick up the story. Let's read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in his custody. Okay, so we're, we're not told exactly what the baker and the cupbearer did, but given the fact that these two dudes were responsible for the king's food and the king's wine, probably means that Pharaoh had learned of some sort of plot to poison him. It's probably what it means. And did you notice into whose custody Pharaoh put these two guys? The captain of the guard. We know this guy. Who's that? Apparently Potiphar. And it just so happened that he put them there in the same prison as Joseph. And it just so happened that the captain of the guard, Potiphar, appointed Joseph to be with these two important figures in Pharaoh's court and attend them just as he had attended Potiphar. Friends, I, I can't be sure of this, but I think it's very likely by this point that Potiphar knew that Joseph was innocent. He knew that he was innocent of that accusation by his wife. And he trusted Joseph once again, like he had trusted him in his house. Look at verse five. And one night, both the baker and the cupbearer dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. Okay, so again, we're meant to see providence on display. The baker and the cupbearer, again, just happened to have vivid dreams on the same night. Well, clearly sent to them by the Lord. Let's continue. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Joseph was confident, friends, that if God gave revelation through these dreams, then certainly he could give an interpretation of them. Now, you may think, how in the world can, this is a question I asked of the text as I studied it. How in the world can Joseph be so confident that the Lord would give him this type of wisdom? Well, number one, Joseph had had dreams, hadn't he? In Canaan, sent to him by the Lord that revealed the plan of his life. Number two, I think by this point in his life, Joseph knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord is with him. Time and time again, the Lord has shown Joseph favor and blessing against all odds. And so Joseph here is relying on God's favor in relation to these dreams. 
I know we're moving quickly. Let's keep reading. Verse nine, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and I pressed them in the Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness, the hesed, the steadfast love to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Friends, this is a rare glimpse, isn't it, into the inner thought life of Joseph. Given how the story is written, you almost get the, the impression, man, Joseph is an integrity machine. He's like a robot. He just does the right thing. He doesn't struggle. He doesn't have emotions or desires. But clearly that's not the case, is it? Here, he lists these grievances against him in the hopes that his networking with the cupbearer will turn to his advantage when the cupbearer is released. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. <laughs> like the cupbearer, the baker's head is also going to be lifted up, but in a dramatically different way. The cupbearer's head is going to be lifted up in hope and restoration. The baker's head is going to be lifted up in judgment. And sure enough, it's what happens. Look at verse 20 on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. He made a feast for all of his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Friends, what a tragic ending to this chapter. These are sad words, but the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The cupbearer did not show Joseph the hesed, the kindness that he had asked him to show him. He didn't remember him. But friends, we're meant to see here a contrast between the cupbearer and the Lord, because the Lord did remember him. The Lord did show steadfast love to Joseph because of what we see next. So we're moving now from the pit to the palace. Again, I know we're, we're speed reading this passage. Let's keep reading verse 41, or chapter 41, verse one. After two whole years, after two whole years, can you imagine 
Day after day, Joseph languished in the pit. Perhaps early on, he was waiting on pins and needles to see if the cupbearer would come through for him. But he never did for two years. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other, other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. What a horror flick of a nightmare. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt with all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now, friends, in ancient Egypt, the Nile, the Nile River was hugely, massively important. It, it, it was and still is the major dominant geographic feature of the land of Egypt. But beyond that, Egyptians looked to the Nile as the source of the nation's economic stability. And beyond that, because it was looked to as the, the fertile kind of provider of the region, in, Egypt, in Egypt's pluralism and their false worship, they, they not only worshiped the sun, they not only worshiped Pharaoh, they worshiped the Nile, personified in the god Hapi, H-A-P-I. I don't know if I pronounced that right. The Egypt's number one god, top of the pantheon, the god of the Nile. They viewed Egypt itself as a gift of the Nile River. And it was administration of the Nile that gave Pharaoh in Egyptian religion the power to generate and produce life. So if the Nile fails, Pharaoh fails, and the entire system of, of their economy and their worship collapses. So, yeah, this dream was a nightmare, wasn't it, to Pharaoh? He was troubled by his dreams. And when Pharaoh ain't happy... Ain't nobody happy, apparently, in the court. Uneasy, Shakespeare said, lies the head that wears the crown. Certainly the case here. The royal court comes to a halt. And so what does Pharaoh do? He gathers all his magicians and, and wise men. Of course, the magicians are like these court astrologers who practice the secret arts. They were believed to be gifted by the gods as professional diviners of the future. Now, if you don't think this type of thing still goes on today, we'll just drive up the road to Sedona and you'll see plenty of it, right? The wise men likely are Pharaoh's educated advisors, all of them stumped by his dreams. So, so what we're meant to see here, friends, is the complete impotency of, of, Egyptians, of the Egyptians' gods. Pharaoh is terrified because of his dreams and none of those said to be close to the gods can interpret them for him. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, 
he interpreted our dreams to us, giving, uh, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's dream jogs the memory, doesn't it, of the, of the cupbearer, of the predicament that he had in the pit. And he remembered this, this Hebrew prisoner who was down there with him and how he had accurately interpreted his dream. Now, friends, let's just pause here again. Push pause and let's just freeze frame again the meticulous providence of the Lord. Should the cupbearer have remembered Joseph immediately? Yes, surely. But if he did, if he had exercised his influence, at the very least, Joseph would have just been released from prison. He would not have been catapulted into the very court of Pharaoh himself. So what we're meant to see here is the Lord sovereignly, again, controlling events to bring about his purposes. He gave the dreams to the cupbearer and the baker. He gave the dreams to Pharaoh. And then in his mysterious wisdom, he ordained for Joseph to languish in the pit longer than anybody wanted, than Joseph wanted for sure. So is that at that exact moment, at the exact time that Pharaoh had the dreams, all the bureaucratic red tape is cut through in an instant. And Joseph moved from the pit to the palace in a matter of minutes. It's stunning. And we're just meant here to stand in awe of God's providence. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. That's one Hebrew word translated. It is not in me. No way, Joseph says. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Friend, this is just this is just stunning, stunning integrity and boldness from Joseph. Surely in this moment, he could have said, yeah, that's me. That's me, the dream interpreter. You got it right. You heard right. That's accurate. Surely there was a temptation. He's in the court of Egypt's power, right? He's in Pharaoh's court. Surely he was tempted to kind of mute the God stuff. But Joseph boldly declares to the king of Egypt that while all of his gods were completely helpless, just watch the true and living God at work. I think this is very similar to what we'll see 400 years later in Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh. The sovereign God humiliates the false gods of Egypt. It reminds you of Daniel, doesn't it? Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. In fact, I think Daniel is written in such a way to remind us of Joseph. So next time you read the Daniel story, think about that. That's a free tidbit for your future study. This is a polemic against the Egyptian gods. The Lord reigns. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. 
The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Then there will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that this thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Once again, we see this, this coupling of dreams. Joseph had two dreams, right? The cupbearer and the baker each had a dream. That's two. And now Pharaoh has two dreams. And Joseph recognizes, oh, this is a sign. The Lord is at work. We're meant to see again this, this contrast, as I've mentioned, between the total helplessness of the most powerful man on the planet and the living God who's going to have his way in Egypt. Joseph told Pharaoh, this thing is fixed by God and God will bring it about. History is in God's hands. The nations and the empires of the world are governed by the Lord. Our last chunk of text, we're going to read verses 33 down to verse 46. I know this is a lot of reading today, but I want us to, to read the story. This is how the Bible works. We get the understanding of the text by reading these, these big chunks of discourse here. Okay, let's read starting in verse 33. Joseph says to Pharaoh, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these, of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Well, that's ironic, isn't it? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Joseph, or excuse me, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and he clothed them in garments. He clothed him in garments. He'd been stripped of his robe. He had left his garment in Potiphar's wife's hand. And now he's clothed in the garments of royalty and fine linen and put a, coal, a gold chain upon his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him to marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It's incredible. 
Do you remember how old Joseph was when he was sold into slavery? When he had the dreams? How old? 17. So now we're told he's 30. 13 years had passed. Friends, just think for a second. What were you doing 13 years ago? That's a long time. I had just gotten out of grad school, right? I was 25 years old. That seems like a lifetime ago, right? 13 years of slavery and degradation and injustice and imprisonment. 13 years to grow bitter and to lose hope. But the Lord was with him from start to finish. Friends, without a God-centered understanding, you might think that Joseph is being made by Pharaoh. His office, his status, his privilege, his wife, everything given to him by the king of Egypt. There's nothing that Joseph received that Pharaoh didn't give him. But clearly, as we read the Bible, we're not, mean, we're not meant to see that, that Pharaoh is the one exalting Joseph, but God is exalting him. It was God that gave Joseph the wisdom and success. Joseph is not Pharaoh's man. He's God's man. He's not merely Pharaoh's vizier or prime minister. He's God's chosen instrument to save the Egyptians, as we'll see next week, to save his family in order to preserve God's promises. Verses 46 to 49 detail Joseph carrying out the plan. Verse 50 says, before the famine came, he had two sons. You might be wondering, well, did Joseph become like a full-on Egyptian? He's the vizier. He's got an Egyptian wife from a powerful and religious family. He's probably rich. But what does Joseph name his sons? Manasseh and Ephraim. Are these Egyptian names, friends? Nope. These are Hebrew names. It's like this act of quiet rebellion by Joseph. Even in Egypt, he worships the Lord. Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew for forget and Ephraim like the word fruitful. So, so good was the Lord to Joseph that he made him to forget his former sorrows and to be a fruitful man. Sure enough, after seven years, the famine came just as God had re revealed to Joseph. Verse 56. So when the famine had spread over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to, to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Beautiful. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, yeah, I get it. That's a rags to riches story, but what in the world does it have to do with me? Are you saying, John, that my life will look like Joseph's? It's going to have a fairy tale ending? Not exactly, but I do think we're meant to see here in the Joseph story, friends, a providential pattern, a blueprint for the architecture of the kingdom of God. In God's way, suffering anticipates glory. Humiliation comes before exaltation. It's the cross before the crown. Friends, God's pension all throughout biblical history was to exalt the lowly. To exalt the lowly. Think about the people of Israel in their slavery and then in their exodus from Egypt. Think of Baron Hannah. Think of King David. Think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Think of our lowly Lord himself. 
God delights to exalt the lowly and the humble. The preeminent example, of course, is the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Godhead. And he condescended to live among us. He was born in poverty. He lived righteously among the unrighteous. He likewise was mistreated and despised and rejected. And then in unfathomable love, he became obedient to a shameful and humiliating death on the cross where he died between two criminals, one who remembered him and one who didn't. And having accomplished salvation for his people by bearing our sin and taking the wrath of God that we rightly deserve, God, as we read earlier, has highly exalted him. He's given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, the reason that we can trust God even in the blackest night of suffering is not because of what we see in Joseph, but because of what we see in Jesus that our lives and our existence as his people are shaped by his cross. That for us too, like him, it's suffering first and then glory later. Friends, the reason that we can joyfully bear up under persecution for righteousness sake is precisely because we know that our reward is in heaven if we do. The reason we can say no to carnal pleasures now is because of the full and eternal satisfaction that awaits us then. The reason we can rejoice even in the greatest affliction is that we know the sufferings of our life now are not even worth comparing to the glory that is gonna be revealed to us. We're people of the promise. We walk by faith. We walk in the trail of the crucified and risen Lord of glory until he comes again. And in that instant, we're gonna be exalted to the highest station glorified with him to live in a world of endless joy. So beloved, take heart. Like Joseph, your life today, you may think about your life, take stock and you say, man, it's not a straight line from point A to point B. It feels like the Lord has taken me on the scenic route. And on that scenic route, there's a lot of suffering. It's full of twists and turns and disappointments and frustrations and sorrows. But as you look at the life of Joseph and as we follow in the steps of our Savior, we can be confident, as one commentator put it, that although God's purposes may not go in a straight line, they always arrive at their intended destination. Always. And in God's meticulous and gracious providence, that straight line leads from suffering to glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this example, this story that we see in your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you, Lord, that uh, even as we see the story of Joseph, it reminds us of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to death for us and is exalted even now at your right hand. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We look to you as the author and the finisher 
of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross, despising its shame, and even now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, Father, mold us and shape us into what you want us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.